This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so honored to have this conversation today around this groundbreaking project, 1619, and to have the kind of conversation we need to have around all dinner tables throughout America, no matter what your background. I just want to, again, thank the panel. I don't have to reintroduce you because the guy that you heard did a great job. I want to start with you, Hannah. Excuse me, Nicole Hannah Jones. What sparked this whole project? When did you wake up and say, I'm going to take on this behemoth? 400th anniversary of the first enslaved people here in America? So there's a long answer and a short answer. I'll try to give the in-between answer. Uh, I've been thinking about the year 1619 since I was a high school student. That's when I first came across that date in a, a history book by Lerone Bennett called Before the Mayflower. And it just struck me that every American child knew about the Mayflower landing in 1620 but no one knew about the white lion landing in 1619 with that first cargo of enslaved people and that there was a reason why one was part of our national narrative and what one's not. So uh, I've been kind of obsessed with that number and kind of excavating um, the history of slavery and the legacy of slavery since then. I studied African-American studies in college. Uh, I became a journalist really only because I wanted to write about racial inequality. And as the anniversary was approaching, I just kept thinking um, this momentous occasion, what I consider to be as fundamental to the American story as the year 1776 was going to pass. And most Americans were not going to have any idea this was an anniversary to commemorate. They had never heard of the year 1619. And here I am at the New York Times, you know, one of the most important journalistic uh, platforms in the world, and I have an opportunity to do something about it. So that's when I uh, decided to pitch the project. And it was very important to me that the project not be a history, but that the project answer that fundamental question that every black person gets, which is slavery was a long time ago. Why don't you get over it? Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to show that we can't get over it because the country hasn't gotten over it and that you can look across almost every aspect of American life and understand uh, why things are by tracing them back to slavery and the anti-black racism that developed to support it. And that's really what the conceit of the project is, is that you can look at anything from traffic to why we consume so much sugar to, of course, the wealth gap, to incarceration, to democracy itself. Uh, and all of these things are linked back to the legacy of slavery. Any pushback when you went to the people at the New York Times and said, I want to do this project? No. I, I say this is the, the number one question I get is because the assumption is the New York Times would never easily allow you to do a project like this. Um, but I pitched the project first to my editor. She said, I think you should pitch it to the uh, editor-in-chief of the magazine. I did, and he immediately said yes. And um, the support, I mean, it really is unprecedented in size at the uh, Times. There's never been a single project at the New York Times that was uh, a special section of the newspaper, magazine, podcast, and live events. Um, it's, it's the biggest project in that way that the Times has ever done. And I think that shows that um, for this project, um, we really had unprecedented support. So Tremaine Lee, how did you get involved and why were you running quickly into this? Uh, so Nicole uh, is a buddy of mine, a friend of mine. We've had conversations about race and racism, structural and otherwise, for a very long time. Um, and we were having this conversation, and she talked about this project she was doing. And I was like, well, I'm trying to do something around 1619 also. And she wouldn't even give me the details about what it was because she didn't want to leak it at first. 
Um, but then she we invited... We're also, you know, journalistic competitors. Right, yeah. we are kind of competitors. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, sort of. Um, but she said, you know, I'd love for you to, to, to take part in this. Would you be willing to do it? And at first I was really like, well, I have the time to do it justice, right? I have a lot of, you know, a lot of things going on, a lot of travel with my day job. Um, but she said, if, if you don't participate in this, and this is like almost verbatim, you're, you're, you're going to regret it. Like, you're going to want to be a part of this. And if she says that and her passion and commitment to it, this is my, my buddy. So I'm like, you know what, I, I believe in you. And understanding the scope of what we're trying to do here, again, with conversations that aren't uncommon to us, right? We've had these conversations about all the inequality, you know, that we didn't just fall out of the sky with all of these, these gaps and the, the vast inequality. These were very intentional systems put in place. Um, so to have the opportunity to frame that in some way, journalistically, um, and knowing that since she was behind it and she believed in it so much, that it was going to be done right. And that she was intentional about who she chose to be a part of this. It was an honor, but also the greater honor is that we're able to deliver this information for our people, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, we hope um, everyone is consuming this, white folks, black folks, everyone, but for us. So our children don't have to be um, bearing so much of that burden of mm -hmm. the suffering and an inferiority complex that they've seated, us, seated in us, right? Grow up understanding that there are no accidents here. Um, and so with that big idea, I was like, you know, I'll play any role you want me to play. Well, we've been talking about Rosewood and Tulsa, Greenwood, Oklahoma, but you tell a story about Elmore Boiling mm -hmm. that I had never heard before, and it broke my heart, pissed me off, and yeah. it kind of laid the foundation <clears throat> for where we are today. Can That's you tell right. that story? The story of Elmore Bowling um, is one that is, is, has been troubling from the first moment I spoke to his, his daughter. Um, Elmore Bowling uh, was in, um, um, you know, he was a, a, a shopkeeper. And he started his shop, he had a gas station because down the road, a white-owned gas station wouldn't allow him to, to get gas there. So he started his own gas station. He had um, a, a trucking company, and this is in Lowndes County, Alabama. Um, and the white folks in the community were immediately resentful about that. Um, he had this large family, he was well-to-do, they were serving food on Sundays to folks, they had a transportation company. He, he was a one-man economy in this community. Um, Bloody Lounge, it would become known as. Um, and some white men one day showed up at his shop with his family inside, his wife and his children, called him out to the robe and shot him dead um, with pistols and a shotgun. Forever changing the course of this family's economic uh, state, forever. After that, the family, still fearing for their lives, had to move. A bunch of the, the sons had to drop out of school uh, because they couldn't simply afford to go to a good school anymore, so they went to the plantation schools and then dropped out altogether. Um, the fate of this family was directly linked to that one incident. So when we think about the big picture, the structural inequality, on the ground every single day in the lives of black folks, there was this violence and terror or the threat thereof, often simply for um, you know, getting a little ahead of yourself. You got the nerve to have a job? You have a, the nerve to be educated. You have the nerve to believe in this American dream. You have the audacity to believe for a moment. And that pendulum swings back and white supremacy rears its violent head as it has time and again and cut down the head of this household, not only impacting the family's life forever. Right. But that entire community and the legacy, because you think about this man shot seven times, six times and then once with a shotgun That's in right. the back. Mm -hmm because they wanted him really dead. That's right. At the time that he was murdered, he had $40,000 in the bank, yep. which at that time was about $500,000 in mm -hmm. today's economy. Uh, murdered, everything gone. Everything. If, if he was the one that was channeling the economy of that mm -hmm. particular town, his absence meant that not just his family was impacted, as That's you right. said, everybody was 40 impacted. People. He, he employed 40 people. 
on his farm with his farming with the transportation company so all those families that were impacted forever and what was crazier is that the white people started pretending to be creditors yeah and they came in and took the land and said that he owed money that he didn't owe right and there was no recourse and because who, there was no who's gonna right, check him? Nobody. no courts that had the family's back right That's so right. no and legal recourse this one person to me represented probably millions throughout this country right mm -hmm. This is not a singular story. No, when you start going through the history and you see the reasons that people were lynched, there are stories, again, of people who were just jealous. There, there, there's one story out of Georgia, um, which I couldn't fit into the piece because the piece had, had to be... Ended know, at some point. It had, yeah. had to end at some, at, at some point. But it was a man who owned this farmland that he, he bought from the white folks who had formerly enslaved his family, and then they were working as tenant farmers and sharecroppers on his farm. He had two daughters that went off to college and came back and were um, teachers in the black school there. Um, he raised so much money um, in bonds for the military during World War II that um, the, the local white paper wrote it up in the paper saying this man raised, I think it was like fifteen or $20,000 with his black organization. The, his neighbor, a white man who could not read or write, was jealous. So he started this confrontation about the property line. And the, 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 the black gentleman said, listen, we've been farming here since I was a child. I know where the property begins and ends. So much so that the, the white man went to the authorities. So the family is out at, at the, the town square, their little carnival or festival, and a police officer comes up to him and says, you know, we have a warrant for your arrest. And he said, for what? Trespassing. The police officer beats him in the head. The one daughter who was pregnant kicks the daughter in the stomach. The, a, a son arrives to help. He gets beaten. The crowd joins in, beat them, beat them all up, put them all in jail. While they're in jail, there are threats of lynching, saying he can't come back home. In his absence, they take all his, his livestock. They already start the process of, of repossessing the home. They have to move out of town under the threat of violence, all because he had the nerve to succeed in America. And just like Elmore Bowling, he had the audacity to try and embrace this American dream. And to your point, it's like, it's not just you know, one family or one man or one woman. The, the ripple through generations, and these families, our families, have never been made whole. I mean, if, if I could just add to that, I think what's, what's important is to, is to understand, we tend to think about uh, Jim Crow or the period of racial terror as being about uh, just simply degrading black people. But it was a system of economic exploitation. And when you understand, the only reason black people existed in this country was for the exploitation of their labor, for the extraction of wealth through their physical labor. Then when slavery ends, that system of exploitation must continue. That is still our only purpose in this country, is to exist to be exploited. And so almost all of the racial terror is to keep black people from being able to compete economically with white people and to ensure a cheap, uh, non-resistant labor force for white planters who just reconstituted slavery. And you can bring that all the way up today and look at the exploitative practices of banking, of real estate, of employment, and understand that it is still trying to ensure that black people cannot compete economically, taking a vulnerable population and exploiting them for financial gain. This has been the role of, of, of almost all violence against black people has been to protect white wealth and to deprive black people of wealth building. And if you think of something like this family that uh, Tremaine featured, so understanding that the median wealth of a black family now is about $7,000. This is a family who at that period managed to get six times the wealth of the average family right now. So this is a very wealthy family. Um, when these families have their land stolen, so it's almost always part of a plot. 
So it, it's never just, I'm going to pop off on you this day because mm-hmm. you looked at me wrong. It's all part of a plot to steal land. And they find the different reasons and they, and they make up a reason to steal the land. Often these families have to flee north. They then often have to get on welfare. They have to depend on the government because all of their property, all of their wealth, they've had to flee with almost nothing. And then you see how we start to get forced into a system of poverty um, and then told that we want to be impoverished. We just don't want to work. We just, you know, after slavery, why didn't you just try hard? Well, black people actually did amazing after slavery with nothing, built institutions, bought land, uh, started businesses. And you see black town after black town destroyed. You see the refusal of white governance to run sewer lines out to black towns, right? Like this constant punishing of black people who are trying to be independent and this desire to keep us in an exploitable position, which uh, many in our community remain today. Uh, we talk about wealth, 13% of the population, according to the census, which we need to fill out more. Uh, but 3% of the nation's total wealth. How does Terry Williams own a bank in this system? <laughs> One United, how do you own a bank? Mm. Tell us the story. Mm. So um, it's sort of interesting hearing the story. And thank you, first of all, thank you for having this. Thank you guys for being here and helping us as the largest black bank in the nation connect the dots. Um, so my history is my family uh, is from this little town called Indian Town, Florida. And it was a railroad track. White people lived on one side, black people lived on the other. And my great grandmother, who um, uh, name we called her Ma Honey, owned a barbecue pit, a juke joint, some real estate. I even don't know what a juke joint is. I think the old, uh, but uh, some real estate and uh, and a penny candy store. And um, following her around is where was my introduction to business. And it really is, you know, for all of us, our history is the history of our family. So I was able to learn from business from her, but then, you know, went to Brown, went to Harvard Business School, worked at Bank of America, got the corporate training, and ended up buying this little bank. It was a little bank at the time, only $50 million, uh, in Boston, and then bought another bank and another bank and another bank, <laughs> four banks, rolled them into one, and changed our name to One United Bank. We then launched our Internet Bank, and we now are the largest black-owned bank, um, 750 million uh, and have customers all over the country. Um, but even with that, the largest black bank uh, is 750 million, but the largest Asian American bank is 30 billion. Mm. The largest Hispanic American bank is 20 billion. And the question is why? And it does have to do with this wealth gap, but it also has to do with us believing what they have told us about ourselves. Yeah. And that's why this project is so important. I, I, this, this 1619 project <laughs> is so important to us as a community because it tells the truth about our history, about our money, about the wealth gap, and why we are where we are today. Because we're led to believe that we don't have wealth because of something we've done. Like, like Nicole said, that we just need to work harder or that we spend too much, or we spend money on the wrong things. And we have bought into that. Or their ice is colder. And we've bought into that. And because of that, we don't trust ourselves. We don't do business with ourselves. We don't bank with ourselves. But every other ethnicity doesn't have that burden. They're not carrying that negativity with them. They 
um, are actually are actually see the the need to do business with themselves in order to build their community. And so for, for me and for the bank, this project is so important because it tells the truth of why. That, that there, in fact, it's sort of interesting as a banker and being in banking for over 25 years, I see the discrimination <coughs> that happens. I see how it can happen because it's so easy to take advantage of a community. It's so difficult for a community to understand all the rules of banking. We choose to not use those rules against our community, but we see other institutions that use those rules against us. So for, for us, it's, this, it's not just this project, it's that this project really allows us to have a window into what the truth is so that we can take it from here. There is so much, so much to the 1619 Project, the, the podcast. Um, and Nicole, from the beginning, you were always going to do a podcast because it's very personal, too, because you drop yeah, a lot okay. of personal history throughout each episode. Um, and each one is powerful and it's a nice companion to the written piece. Um, was that always the vision? No. No. So how did that come about? Um, so I've been for a while talking to the podcast team about doing a narrative podcast, but honestly, just uh, getting out the print product almost killed me so I wasn't actually <laughs> interested in uh, doing anything but towards the end of the project my editor talked to the podcast team and really felt we should try to do a narrative podcast around it um, and of course it was the right decision I mean so I was recording and working on that podcast as the piece the print piece was coming into the world and I was you know it was a lot. I was really exhausted. Um, what probably was the gave process? them way too much attitude. But as, um, as a writer, you know, I'm, when I watch, when I look at this piece, I, I don't know how you pulled it off. And mm -hmm. you just said it almost killed you. So what was the process? Did you have a big storyboard? You've been vi envisioning this for so long. What was the execution process? Because I think a lot of us have great ideas, but we have no clue how to execute. And you executed the hell out of this. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you know, when, when you see the finished product, you can't really understand all the messiness and ugliness and despair uh, that goes into making it. Um, it was it, it, this was definitely the hardest thing, both emotionally and just in terms of trying, you know, the pressure to get it right, to not do something that would further demean our ancestors, to um, tell the story in the best way. And also understand, you know, every fact had to be right because I knew people were going to come for this reframing. When you're saying, you know, we're not going to deify our founders, and the people who've been treated as the bottom, we're actually going to say, are the most American of all. Like you, you better have your facts right because you know that people are going to want to take that down. Um, but then there was just, you know, so day to day, um, I'm managing. What story should we tell? Who should tell them? Um, reading everything that's coming out to make sure that it's right. We had a, a style guide because I, I, there was certain language with, that was never going to appear in the project. Like we weren't going to call human beings a slave um, unless it was a direct quotation from a historical document. Uh, we weren't going to, where we could, call uh, enslavers slave owners. Um, I very intentionally called, you know, Monticello a forced labor camp because that's what it was. It's not a beautific uh, plantation. So there were all those things. And then while I'm managing the larger project, uh, I'm also having to write my own report and write my own essay. And uh, I mean, you, you know, I, I, it was hard. I, I was, uh, it was almost debilitating at times. Um, 
because all I kept thinking about again was like, well, I'm trying to create this historical narrative, but I'm also just trying to do justice to all of the suffering and all of the resistance and, and everything that our ancestors went through and, and to just not create something that didn't live up to that. And then just straight ego, like you don't want to pitch this big project and your essay is the weak link, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it was, it was it was all of those things, but uh, every almost every black person who worked on this project and a lot of the white people who worked on this project cried at some time. Mm -hmm. Some of us cried multiple times. Uh, we all know that our ancestors suffered, but to kind of sit in that suffering nonstop for eight months to look at all of these photos and images and to read their words and to like never really get a break from it, um, while also trying to put this thing into the world that you hope, uh, you know, I, honestly, I wasn't that concerned how white Americans were going to react to it. I was very concerned about how black people would react to it. I just didn't want black people to feel like I had not done right by us. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot. You but did. We had the conversation yeah. early on about well. yeah. the idea of the violence and lynching yes. and do you show photos and it's not an abstract idea, this violence, this very real violence that sent us, many of us hurtling from the South. Um, but to try to put a, a proper frame around it to talk for me especially is like the violence yes. is key the everyday violence yes. the physical violence let alone the abstract violence of lack of access to everything else yes. um but having a conversation steeped in that how much do we how much how many layers of blood do we put on this yes. mm -hmm. to get people's attention to understand but then on the other hand it's like we don't want to re-traumatize our people i actually decent you know I, I unplug from the emotion and I focused on the facts, right, yeah. and the numbers. So Matthew, Matthew Desmond. uh, Desmond's piece, I honed in on because to have a discussion with people who have no humanity, you know, this that violence was because of economy, right? So if you go back to the numbers and the money and why we were brought here in the first place, and you unpack that, it makes it irrefutable. Like this, when we talk about reparations or anything else, it comes back to the numbers. Yeah, we can talk about pain. Right. A lot of people don't connect to the pain. Mm -hmm. So when when he's writing about you know our banking system in America, that you could put a human being up as collateral and that was more valuable right. than a house. Yes. Right. Yes. Your human beings were more valuable than a house. And then collateral and all of the things that we do in this in this system, in this banking system, rooted in the enslavement system, complete direct correlation, our work practices, Absolutely. our work practices and, and incentives and all of that rooted in slavery so if you understand that then it's like why aren't we teaching this in school and why isn't this as a banker terry because yeah, you're no, shaking your head i have to and say you yes i was like that yeah. the, what blew me away was the fact that we were mortgaged yes now and i you know i mean i have to like say like the modern mortgage the modern literally mortgage. comes from yes. us being mortgaged yes, yes. yes. that yes. just like you buy a house today and you get a mortgage yes. they were getting mortgages on our back yes and not only that, but that's what allowed slavery to grow. Yes. Just when you think about the housing market, right? Imagine if you had to pay for a house with all cash. Imagine if every American had to pay for a house with all cash. There's no way that most of us would be able to buy a house. But the fact that you're able to get a mortgage allows the housing industry to exist. We and loans, right? So they're borrowing yes. against enslaved people yes. to buy more enslaved people. To buy people. more enslaved people. And children. And children. Right. Yes. Yes. So, yes. And so it really goes to the issue of yes. banking and the yes. role that banking played. And the fact that these banks were 
European banks, northern banks, and also the connection of the textile industry, right. you know, and the fact that this is always, slavery is always viewed as like this southern thing yes. and that we were taken advantage of. But I, I said the same oh. thing, follow the money, yeah. follow and, the money. And how insidious for Europe, for England to abolish slavery, yet participate in the banking and the, in the finance system in right. the new world, exactly. because... I can still make money off of something Absolutely. and still keep my well we don't we don't have enslavement anymore mm -hmm. here but you're still profiting and fueling it mm -hmm. and and that was really powerful as well as you when you think about the breakdown of the cotton when cotton be, became so plentiful mm -hmm. because now you're just fueling and fueling and then it crashes the market crashes and then what happens to the people because you still now you can't afford what you used to be able to afford. So families got broken yes. up. Mm -hmm. People got whipped more to do different things mm -hmm. and do, and and wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, all of that in this piece. I mean, that's the thing, it's the great American cover up. I mean, I think that has Ooh. been yes, yeah, the response yeah, yeah. to the project yeah. has been yeah. the way that we have been taught all of this history is marginalized. Mm -hmm. And we have been taught to just erase the centrality of slavery to our founding and our wealth and the systems that develop after that. And so the project is peeling back piece by piece. Oh, you wanna know why you don't have health care? Mm -hmm. Actually, let me show you about how yeah. it's Freedmen's Hospitals that bring first universal health care, right? Like it's, it's tracing back all of those things. And I think people's response has been, wow, it's so clear that this has been intentional, right. that the cover-up has been intentional. Okay. Um, and I think that is why people have responded to it in that way. Can we're, I? We're gonna take a break. Okay. When we come back, we're gonna uncover some of this, especially healthcare, education. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get back to banking. Uh, we're, well, this is the 1619 Project. This is Karen Hunter, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, mm -hmm. Tremaine Lee, mm -hmm. and of course, Terry Williams from One United Bank. We'll be right back. Let me just, again, welcome our guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the progenitor of all things 1619, Tremaine Lee, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and of course, One United Bank President, CEO, Terry Williams. Before we went to break, um, we were talking actually off mic about the Freedmen's Bureau mm -hmm. and this notion of the 40 acres and a mule and setting up these institutions to help people transition out of bondage. Talk a little bit about how that didn't work. <laughs> So, you know, Reconstruction is this remarkable time that we learn very, very little about because uh, if you study the period of Reconstruction, you realize what happened after wasn't inevitable. That for this brief 12-year span, uh, we actually tried to make right and uh, help black Americans to ascend into uh, their citizenship rights. So you see the Freedmen's Bureau um, set up to help provide education for enslaved people, health care for enslaved people. Um, and after a, a massacre uh, of contraband, which were enslaved people who ran away from plantations and started following the Union troops because they heard if they did that, they could gain their freedom, um, the 40 acres and a mule. But that entire time, uh, there was two things that were happening. Uh, one, the Freedmen's Bureau was had to be formed to help the formerly enslaved as well as poor white people. Because even <clears throat> at the end, like the second after slavery, there was a sense that you could not give black Americans something that poor white people were not getting. So uh, Freedmen's schools had to serve poor white people. Um, Freedmen's programs had to serve poor white people. Uh, and the second thing that you saw was this pushback from white people saying, if we give them something that they don't deserve, they won't know how to work. 
and it, it is this uh, psychology that develops where clearly people understand that black people can work. That's all black people have ever done in this country. But as soon as you get freedom, there's a fear that you that you are lazy, that you are shiftless, that the only reason that black people ever worked was because they were forced to uh, by, by white people. And so they fought against every Freedmen's Bureau program uh, from the beginning, understaffed, underfunded, didn't want uh, to help black people at all. <clears throat> Uh, even with the Freedmen's Hospitals, they really only start because disease is starting to spread Small to white pox. communities, right? Mm -hmm. And then white folks are like, oh, we got to do something about uh, that disease. There was a sense that black people would actually die out after slavery, that we were so dependent on white people as if we hadn't lived independent of white people on the continent of Africa for six million years, um, that we were so dependent on white people that we would just die out uh, at the end of slavery. Um, and then uh, what happens is they elect a um, Rutherford B. Hayes into the White House. He makes a compromise with the uh, Southern Democrats to get elected. And the compromise is, we'll withdraw federal troops. We'll basically end Reconstruction. You guys can go back to white rule in the South. And within 12 years, all of the Freedmen's Bureau programs are dismantled. And what begins is a, is a hundred year really uh, reign of racial terror to force black people into a quasi-slavery. But the amazing thing about that period are all the institutions <coughs> that black people built. And, and, and I know we understand it uh, in the abstract sense, but these are people who had never been able to earn a dime who had not been able to accumulate any wealth, any land, any property. And the first thing they do when they get freedom is they find ways to earn money so they can build churches and schools. When the Freedmen's Bureau officers come down to bring education to the enslaved people, they find the schools are already operating. That wherever black people can find a space in a book, they are teaching each other and starting to form their own schools. We were buying our own land. Um, we were trying to take as much advantage as we could of our freedom, and even that was, was too much. And so the 40 acres and a mule went to a very small number of enslaved people, kind of in the sea, sea islands of South Carolina, parts of Georgia. And once Reconstruction ends, they take that land and return it to the white enslavers. And to this day, the only people in America who ever received reparations for slavery are white people who owned us. But also during that, that time, there was that brief moment where you had the Freedmen's Bureau and you had the Freedmen's Bank, where black folks were cobbling together what they could and depositing that in the bank, right? But even though we were shiftless and couldn't handle any money or responsibilities, they ran that bank into the ground. Yes. And very, very few people, once the bank was, was dissolved, got any of their money back. I think at that time it was more than a million dollars that they had deposited in, in, the, in the bank, right? But then just like everything else, that disappears. And then you see this distrust, right, beginning to grow black people, yeah. financial institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Literally, the only pennies we could scrape together out of slavery, we put into your bank, and then you steal our money, you close the bank, and we get nothing. I'm keeping my money at home under the mattress. Right. right? You see, I mean, you see this everywhere. Healthcare, in every institution, we have a reason to distrust those institutions. Right. You talk about bad blood, you know, and, and it's stunning. We were talking about the universal health care proposals that yeah. are out there. Mm -hmm. And that's not it's not the first, second, third, fourth or fifth time. And each time it always comes back to denying black people yes. health care. Right. Mm -hmm. And people don't even understand. And I guess it's ironic that our health care that we have now happened under a black man. I, I, that doesn't, uh, you know, <laughs> go unnoticed. But it's interesting when the first instance of this, they have they mount a propaganda campaign a marketing campaign, first yes. of all, to say black people are going to just be extinct. <clears throat> they're they're going to die out, like you said, into yes. extinction. But then this notion that if we do this, then we're giving our taxpaying dollars to help these people who should just go away anyway. 
and it was all about us. How do we get over that? How do we reconcile with that? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, we, I mean, we won't, right? I mean, I, I spent. So it's just we just. I mean, we still have to fight it, but I spent a lot of time in my essay talking about the psychology that has to develop uh, that allows a country that says it's based on the individual rights and God-given freedoms of man while also holding one-fifth of the population in absolute bondage. You have to develop a certain psychology, and that psychology is black people are not fully human, so we're not actually hypocritical because these rights are for full humans and citizens, and black people are not. Once that psychology develops, once you use it to justify slavery, when that person is no longer enslaved, you can't now say you are fully human and a full citizen just like I am, because then it gives lie to the whole basis of slavery, which is you're not human. <clears throat> so you have to keep denying that person's full and that race's full humanity and to re justify and, it. and reinforcing it. And I say reifying it through programs and violence. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the polling on this, I mean, the reason I signed that story was it really was a story about why we have the stingiest social safety net period of Western industrialized countries. It's not just healthcare, shortest maternal leave, right? Uh, lowest wage, lowest uh, labor uh, membership, like everything that actually helps the common good, we do worse than European countries that had slavery elsewhere, but not a large enslaved population on their land. And the polling is clear that white Americans do not support social programs if they think large numbers of black people will benefit them. They will hurt large numbers of poor white people as long as they can hurt a lot more black folks. And you see that again and again. Look at the Medicare expansion. It was the, it was the, the com former Confederacy that doesn't expand. There are millions of poor white people who cannot get insurance, who cannot get health care down there because there are many more millions of black people. Well, actually not, but proportionally more black people who are suffering from that. And that's what I wanted to show with the project is all of these things that we have done to hurt black people have never been able to be just contained to black people. They actually hurt all of us and everyone is suffering because we cannot get over this racism at our founding. We talk about the reinforcing these ideas, you about the Dred Scott case where we, we were a slave race, mm -hmm. never to share any of the rights or respect of white people, period. Mm -hmm. And even though that was overturned with the Constitution amendments, that's the guiding theme and stream through all of this, that we are a slave race to be in this space in perpetuity. But it was effective because of marketing. We were talking about that off mic, right? The marketing of our, our inferiority physically, physiologically, uh, you know, studying us and, and coming up with these fake rules about who we are, right? And then also kind of putting it into my, people's minds that if we do this for you, it's gonna take something away. It's not, not different than what we're doing now. And I'm, I'm asking the question, why aren't we able to reverse market? Why aren't we able to, to reverse market and, and put out a drumbeat of why this is important for us to come together, why this is important for us to do for all people, that it helps all of humanity in the United States, not just this group of people. I just think we do a very poor job of, of educating people. And why isn't this in the schools? And why aren't we fighting for that in the streets that every kid in America should know about this project and everything that's in it? But I don't even hear that being trumpeted out frequently. Well, well, to be clear, so we have a, a curriculum. Um, I know. The Pulitzer Center has a free curriculum. We're being taught in every state in the country. We're being taught in more than 800 schools across the country. Every single uh, Washington, D.C. high school, every Houston high school, every Chicago high school is teaching the curriculum, and we're hoping to expand that. Because is it we mandatory? Do believe, no. Um, no, it's not mandatory. Well, in Chicago, it's mandatory because the CEO said that every student is going to learn this curriculum. I know in D.C. they're doing um, professional development around how to teach the curriculum right now. Um, 
mandatory curriculum is usually set by the state and I wouldn't expect two months after a project came out that our curriculum would be mandatory anywhere. I know Houston is developing a mandatory curriculum, but it won't be rolled out. So we definitely understand that part of uh, this effort has to be not reframing for adults, but framing it correctly in the first place for children. That is very important. Uh, mm -hmm. Tremaine talked about this a little bit. I talk about this all the time. That as a black child, you are born into a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. You are born into a sense of inferiority. And lucky if you're lucky enough to have parents who teach you something different, then you may not feel that. But most of us, our parents were born into that same sense. Our parents were also not educated. And so this project, I, I hope um, the younger we can teach it, will teach our children not to think that way, but also help white children not to feel such a sense of superiority, yes. right? Uh, I was, um, I was at this event in Newark about the 1690 project with um, Ryan Haygood, and he said this amazing thing. He said this white guy came up to him after a talk and about the wealth gap and, and was saying, you know, uh, he thinks, the wealth gap is so bad for black folks because we spend on the wrong things, which every black person has heard that same thing. Mm -hmm. Like somehow if we didn't buy a $150 pair of Jordans, we, we wouldn't have a wealth gap, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. As if, <laughs> as if white, you know, black folks are the one keeping Gucci afloat. We're not. Um, and, and he says, the white guy was like, and, and you know what? I don't have, so I think in New Jersey has the highest uh, income of any state, media mm -hmm. income. And I think the white wealth there is something ungodly. 300, median is 330,000. And he says the white guys, well, I don't, I don't have three hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars wealth. And Ryan says he told him, well, that actually is the individual failure because in this country, <laughs> right, where everything has been set up for white people to accumulate wealth, the fact that you don't is the failure. It's not the fact that black people don't. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. I'm going to use that, uh, though I'm crediting it. So it, it is important that we all understand the systems. If you guys have seen the Matrix, mm -hmm. I always talk about the red pill, right? Mm -hmm. You can you could take the blue pill and you can keep living your life and, and pretend that you don't have to know all the architecture that built this inequality. Uh, the 1619 Project is the red pill. Come on. Once you yeah. read it, you yeah. can't see this country the same. And you can't mm -hmm. simply say if black people tried harder. Nobody has tried harder. Right. No one. Like you can show no one has tried harder. Yeah. Um, when you talk about the marketing campaign, there's always been black folks trying to push a counter narrative. Mm -hmm. We don't have, we're 13% of the population. We don't control all. The, mm. the white marketing campaign was across every genre. You had scientists who were trying to prove our inferiority, art that was trying to show our inferiority. You had educators, right? You had politicians. There was no aspect of American life that was not trying to justify our enslavement by proving that we are inferior. And we just don't have those same levers. Except now where some of us are in these institutions, you know, Tremaine's at MSNBC, I'm at the New York Times, and we now that's why, you know, it's not too many of us in. Yes. <laughs> Especially not too many of those who think like we do, who are in Come those on. institutions, because that is the lever that can that can change the well, narrative. That's what the fight is. What's at, what's at stake? Yes. When you talk about the idea of, of, of privilege and white people wrestling with to un, how do they understand their own privilege, it's that your race will never be the reason why you don't succeed in America. Mm -hmm. And so if we present this kind of history and the story and they have to actually confront it, well, what does that say about us? Right. Right? So there's a benefit to making sure that folks stay ignorant and don't embrace this. And this that's is why right. I go back to education. My dad told me when he was six years old he had to sing Dixie his whole class mm -hmm. they learned at six 
and he said he remembers, you know, them clapping, and he was just excited. It's a good tune. Did, it's catchy. <laughs> it's catchy. Something you about know, that white supremacy. Just, yeah. No, I mean, the, tune is, the tune is catchy. Wait, you right. what, what you're singing about. Right, and it gets into your psyche <laughs> yes. to the point that you can, all people who know That's that right. song, you can repeat every word, That's and right. you're like, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And going back to your podcast on music, our drums and guitars and mm-hmm. all of that laid the foundation for this music that we have now, that Absolutely. we can have gospel and Christian in separate categories, and that there's rhythm and blues and rock and soft rock and he played those tunes and That's I was right. like ooh even in our music they have been allowed to propagandize who we are and we fall in lockstep with that mm-hmm. so I think being conscious about it and this project helps us be conscious no longer do we have uh, the luxury to say we don't know That's right. but also uh, Karen don't underestimate you and Urban View okay. um, because thing. you do get the word out yes. and this project and this actual meeting and town hall meeting is a way for us to get the word out and the reality is that we wouldn't be here today we wouldn't be as successful as we are today if we weren't getting the word out we got the word out which is why we migrated to the north we got the word out in our churches Mm -hmm. with the civil rights movement we got the word out this is another sort of um phase of that chapter now we're going to get the word out about the 1619 project that's where we are and on that note, I think we have to go. No, okay, we got time? All right, good, 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 good. When we were talking about, um, you know, Cotton being the, the king, and, and I didn't understand until I read um, Edward Baptist, the half has never been yes. told, how powerful Cotton was to our demise as human mm-hmm. beings, right? Mm-hmm. And, but you think about the Native Americans. Their land was taken not for any other mm-hmm. reason than to expand, co- I mean, literally murder, genocide on the backs of this thing called cotton, yes. the cotton gin that I know some black person had to come up with as well because, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. But that spurred a whole other level of fever around getting more black bodies in to pick this cotton to make more money to do these things to be wealthy to sit back and more land for all those things right the only reason we can expand west is because the haitians the black haitians overthrow their masters bankrupting france and france has to uh get rid of this massive louisiana territory so it is enslaved people getting their freedom in Haiti that actually leads to the expansion of slavery in the United States and then the taking of native lands and Indian removal. So where all of this is connected to slavery, even all of these things we don't understand. But when you learn about the Louisiana Purchase, you never hear about Haiti. You never hear that this was enslaved people, the only people in the history of the world to overthrow their masters successfully and take their own country. You don't hear about that. I was just talking to Tremaine. Every person has been taught about the cotton gin. You are not taught about the cotton gin's connection to slavery. You don't actually, right? You're taught about this as amazing shine of American innovation. We made it easier to grow cotton. We don't say that that meant that half of black families would be separated and moved across the West to expand cotton. Same thing with industrial revolution. It is a sign of American greatness, right? The cotton that is being spun in those textile mills is coming from enslaved people down south. Um, it was all connected, and, and, and I'm really interested in this idea of national memory because we are taught about certain things to make us feel a certain way about who we are, and black people are the most inconvenient people in America to that narrative. Yeah. We just are. Like, Native people are inconvenient, but we don't see them, right? right. They, we, they almost extinguish them. Mm-hmm and who are left have either blended in or they're off on a reservation. But we are the daily reminder of this nation. Of the hypocrisy. Other original sin of the hypocrisy. And I argue that's why we have been constantly punished because Mm -hmm. we had the 
audacity to survive. And the, and the idea that, uh, speaking of narratives and how we frame the South, the evil demonic South, right. and the North, full of abolitionists and Quakers who were fighting for our freedom. But I think it was in Nicole's piece, or one of the pieces that talked about, um, it was Charles Sumner, the governor of Massachusetts, yes. the lash and the loom. There's like an unholy alliance yes, from the lash, from, from the, the enslavers down South. But you look at uh, Brooks Brothers. I read this story a while ago about how they were down in by the port, right? So they were getting all these boatloads of boatloads of cotton to make these Negro cloth. Mm. Right, and there are places like like New Orleans and across the South where if you are a very wealthy um, owner, right, plantation owner, to, to flaunt your wealth, you had your enslaved dressed to the nines. So when they walk around town, you can say, "Oh, that's that's so and so's." Yeah, and that was all part and parcel of this business that that Brooks Brothers was doing. And Brown Brothers, right, from Brown, uh, one of the biggest ship uh, slave ship owners. All of these things need to be part of our lexicon. I just want to, since we're winding down, reparations. Mm -hmm. What does reparations look like, Nicole Hannah-Jones? Mm -hmm. Is it is it going to happen? Oh, so that, okay, that, those are two different questions. Um, this is what I'll say. I think the question of what reparations looks like is not that challenging, right? Reparations looks like a cash payment to those who can trace ancestry. Uh, I mean, uh, Sandy Darity, whom you interviewed for your piece, is kind of the, the, the chief economist and thicker on this. Uh, if you can trace a descendant back to American slavery, you qualify for reparations, and you can prove that prior, 10 years prior to the discussion of the reparations bill, you actually lived as a black person, right? So you're not, <laughs> no Rachel Dolezal's and whatnot. Um, so it's that. So I, I think that's actually pretty easy. And I think reparations has to be two things. Anyone who thinks reparations should not come in a cash payment, I think is bought into the idea of white supremacy, mm -hmm. right? Wealth was extracted. Wealth needs to be gotten. If I spend my whole reparations check at the Gucci store, that's my damn business. <laughs> I'm not going to. Don't, don't say your whole I'm not don't going do to. It. Don't do but it. But I'm saying, like, the notion that it's paternalistic to say, Black people can't be trusted to spend the money that they deserve for, for restitution for what was taken. And reparations is not just about slavery. Reparations is about the 100 years that follows of racial apartheid, of legal apartheid. Uh, my father was born into Jim Crow, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. They are living victims of this and that wealth extraction, which actually still continues. And then I think the second part of that has to be a massive investment into the communities that uh, have had that wealth taken. Uh, I think a massive investment into actually enforcing civil rights law. So no one should expect, uh, you know, if reparations happens, that black people can never complain about racism again. Reparations will not erase uh, racism. It will not bring equality. Reparations is about restitution and that is it. It is about paying what is owed. Will it happen? Uh, I would never try to predict the future. Uh, I think if you look at the track record, black people have been fighting for reparations since the 1800s, have not yet received it. Uh, but Dr. Darity did say, we hosted a reparations panel um, for the 1619 Project last week, and he said that he has not seen this much energy and serious conversation around reparations um, <clears throat> since, well, seen is wrong because he wasn't alive during Reconstruction, but that there has not been this type of energy and serious conversation around it since right after Reconstruction. And I think that that is hopeful. The fact that presidential candidates have talked about it, that it can be taken as a serious question where before people would consider you to be a fringe person you if you to even took it now. seriously. Yeah, you actually, right, you actually have to answer to that question. Um, I think that speaks to 
a, a greater understanding. And while there is no specific uh, article of reparations in the project, there will be. I'm working on one. And I think you cannot read the entire magazine and not come away understanding that mm -hmm. a great debt is old and mm -hmm. it's time for this country to pay. Amen. Mm -hmm. Jermaine, you, you want to add to that? I mean, it's time for this country to pay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Period. Drop I, the mic. You know, you know I'm, I'm careful in weighing in the policy ideas, but I think it's clear from the 1619 piece, if you have any understanding of American history, that the, the violent economic dispossession of black people that created America as this powerful um, you know, beast in the world, moving through with all the fat and all the money and everything, is on our backs, right? Mm -hmm. So however we decide to rectify that, some rectifying needs to happen and it hasn't happened yet. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Nicole said it plain and it makes sense. I think this, the 1619 project, um, if you walk away with anything else, not just um, that the, the, the tentacles of slavery reach to this day, uh, but that the nation and America and democracy was all built on this evil institution and on our backs. And so uh, to Nicole's point earlier about this idea of shame, um, there's a, the, the piece for me, it's reading her piece, is not shame of being black, right? It's a, an American kind of shame. Like, yes. we are part of this, and we are still here, and we walk around with this foreign tongue in our mouths, and our people are hungry, and we're dying and all that. But then the flip side is saying that, but we did build this. Mm -hmm. So if you want to claim it, you should have every right as a black American to say, you know, I am American because I built this. That's the part that I've never felt Wait, that necessarily mm -hmm. coming away saying like well you know what that is that is the truth mm -hmm. we fought and died and bled and built and forced this country to reconcile with this hypocrisy every step of the way mm -hmm. i think the early anecdotes in your piece about thomas jefferson and as you're writing these words knowing it's full of lies and hypocrisy and it took us to force that dred scott i fell into a rabbit hole last night really diving deep in the whole dred scott but saying we're here and going to court and the lower courts and now supreme court and pushing 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 using the levers that do exist to try to force america to to, to this space where you want to be the greatest version of yourself as possible and and black people in america did that at every turn can i just add quickly i'm yeah. sorry reparations is, is not anti-poverty programs it is not race neutral um, programs like universal health care. Those things are important, but that is not reparations. Most black people are not poor. Reparations is not about keeping black people out of poverty. It's about restitution. So honestly, whether people always say, well, should Michael Jordan get reparations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is Michael Jordan the descendant of people who are enslaved in this country? Absolutely. So just to be clear, anyone who talks about a race neutral it is actually antithetical to reparations. Reparations is uh, very distinctively for those who are, the, from those who have been enslaved in this country, just to be clear. So, and I also think it's, it is reparations, but it's also a mindset of taking the blame away from ourselves mm -hmm. and recognizing that this was something that was done to us. And while we fight for that change in mindset, we also have to look at ourselves and recognize that most of us are actually just one transaction away from closing the wealth gap. Just one transaction. If you look at the wealth gap, we're one transaction. That one transaction could be buying a home. That one transaction could be getting insurance. That one transaction could be starting a business. All of us have to be on our personal journey and recognize what should we do individually to close the wealth gap because our individual wealth gap allows us to support this type of, of learning for our community. Mm -hmm. So we need the resources to support the marketing, the learning of what is the truth. 
and at the same time change our mindset to recognize that this was done to us, not by us. Amen. Terry Williams, CEO, One United Bank. Thank you, Tremaine. Thank you, Tremaine Lee, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, MSNBC, and of course the great Nicole Hannah-Jones, 1619, soon to be Pulitzer Prize winning as well. Let me just thank you all for being here. Thank you. And now we enter the Q&A portion just for our folk on demand. So let's hit the questions. Appreciate y'all too. You okay? All right. We, we gotta wait for the mic to come to you. All right. Okay. I'm Derek Robinson. I'm from Long Island, New York. And first, I want to commend all of you for the hard work that you've done, the success that you've achieved. I do have a copy of the 1619 Project, and I'm not going to let it go. But I do want to know where I can get additional copies of the 1619 Project so that I can share with the young people and make this available, but they're not going to get my copy. <laughs> that's a question you get in the second that's, that's, yeah. that's the second You were on the streets handing them out. I remember I like yeah, when, they, when, yeah. it, when it was yeah, sold out. We yeah. were. So here, here's the problem. Um, <laughs> you know, the reason why the copies are hard to find is because people don't subscribe to print newspaper mm -hmm. and we could not predict the success of it and so the copies just sold out and because people don't subscribe to print newspapers no it used to be every newspaper had their own printing press now all the newspapers print on the same press and though printing times are scheduled months and months in advance it's almost impossible to get a special run so we've been working on trying to print more copies but um, financially it's not really viable uh, mm -hmm. we're trying to raise some money to do it uh, and also it's just hard to get in and this is just, you know, a matter of people, like somebody wrote a letter to my house mad that they couldn't get a copy out. I was like, y'all have lost your mind. Uh, but it is, you know, it, it, is this, it is a symptom of people not supporting the product the product and now everybody wants a product now the copies that we gave out i personally fundraised to print 200,000 additional copies wow. because i wanted to make sure that it wasn't just the typical times reader who had access to these copies but those copies are going to schools and libraries uh historically black colleges certain events so the long uh, that was a very long way of saying um, you gotta luck, wait. But probably not. It's coming. You know, but, We're working but, on it though. And as soon as, uh, yeah, as soon as, if we are able to get into the print run, we will make an announcement. But uh, stay tuned. Get there the will be a way to get your hands on it. Get the digital copy yeah, digital. too. There's a digital, yeah. and the, and the podcast is amazing. You can actually go to the Pulitzer Center's website and they have a PDF. So I know people don't like to try to print the mm. like the online version, but, but they actually have a PDF of the whole project That's you can print for free. That's good to know. PulitzerCenter.org, I think yeah. it's .org. And, and to piggyback on Mr. Robinson's question, it's a larger question about media, and it's a larger question about representation. 4% mm -hmm. of newsrooms across the country are represented by us, mm -hmm. and I don't know what percentage of the 4% are like Tremaine and, and mm -hmm. um, Nicole, because I remember being in a newsroom, and not a lot of us were pushing people to do things, mm -hmm. you know, having that discussion and pitching things that mm -hmm. would cha change and transform people's minds about us mm -hmm. and other things. Um, crisis, Ida B. Wells, others, you know, mm -hmm. media is not what it was. It's mm -hmm. all clickbait now and algorithms and mm -hmm. you didn't know that this was going to be a hit. Yeah. And But they it did, did it anyway. But now that it is, mm -hmm. will this open the floodgates for more outlets to pr produce products like this? I think Nicole, I think you get to this point with not. this because Nicole has put in the work for so long okay. and she's a force unto herself. Yes. Right. So she can move in this space and do that. But I think you've been in newsrooms. 
keep your head down? Do you say anything? Are, are they young? Are they scared to lose their jobs? Are you dealing with editors who are obstructionists, who believe in you, believe in the vision, understand the history themselves? You'd be surprised in some of these newsrooms how you know dense people still are culturally. <laughs> and how, how racist you, it is. And there, still. there's some racism there. I mean, Absolutely. but I, but I also think, like you said, they didn't expect it to be this such a you know fabulous, wonderful, popular. Um, uh, experience and it may be from that success that others might try to replicate it. No, I think you're saying something else, though. I think you're saying because of the success, I think people are going to hunker down, double down on their racism and say, "Uh uh-uh, this is waking up too many people. Mm. Let's shut this down. Mm. Now that we see how successful this is, uh uh-uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Mm. hold up, hold up. People are actually uh, moving as a result. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I think we can can hope. I I do think, you know, um, the Times is benefited tremendously from this project so i don't think there is a fear uh of the times uh, of that Mm -hmm. um what i do think is i mean tremaine is right i'm in a particular position at the times i don't know that any other black reporter could have uh commanded that amount of resources and i was almost pushed out of my out of the profession myself at one point for wanting to write about black folks when, so, can you tell us about because i mean yes you, like eight years ago i almost quit journalism because mm-hmm. i was being i was in a different newsroom but i was being punished i was being called in for meetings and disciplined for pitching too many stories and wanting to write too much about black folks and i think that mm-hmm. is the common experience mm-hmm. for black journalists mm-hmm. is they want a phenotype diversity but not intellectual mm-hmm. diversity and if you're going to come in there and be pushing to write black stories mm-hmm. it can be a very hard place so How did it turn i around? somehow managed to survive. I mean, I, I outlasted that and went to an organization that allowed me to do the types of, gave me the freedom to do the types of reporting. But I understand all too well the obstacles of the journalist's face. With that said, um, if you open the contributors page to the, the uh, project, you see almost everybody, about 85, 90% of the contributors to that magazine are black. Mm-hmm. Almost all the writers, all the creative writers, all the photographers are, all the uh, original art. Um, and what what I hope it does for other journalists who want to push something similar is to show that you can have the highest caliber uh, of reporting and something that you literally can't print enough copies of and the entire thing can be created by black folks. Yeah. I think that sends a powerful message. Now, I, I, I am not an optimistic person to think suddenly we're going to see all of this great freedom. Um, but I do think it makes it harder, harder to shut the ideas down when you have an example yeah. of an idea. It, had the Times not invested, I could have the best idea in the world, but had they not invested the resources, uh, and trust me, um, we had a hard time selling ads for the project. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of, um, you know, advertisers who didn't want to touch mm-hmm. being seen in the slavery uh, issue. There were ads we had to turn down because those companies had their own histories with slavery. And mm-hmm. I was like, I, I, I'm, mm-hmm. this would not be your way of mm-hmm. paying restitution. <laughs> um, and so it was hard to do. But I, mm-hmm. I, I do hope um, that showing when you put that type of resources. <clears throat> Uh, behind black folks who are willing to work hard and have a great idea that that does open it up for other journalists. Mm. But I, I don't know. We'll see. I guess we'll see in a year or two what happens. We will. When you get that Pulitzer too, that oh, all. Lord. Yes, yes. I just put it up. I gotta speak it out. I am the only one up here without one as a journalist. I'm feeling some type of way. No, it's all right. It's, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. We both did it as 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 part of a team. So there's that too, right? So you're gonna get yours. I know. It, that's why I know you're gonna yeah. get it. Hello, my name is Brandon from South Orange, New Jersey. 
And I'd just like to say thank you guys being a young African-American. And this panel really gives me the confidence. And this question's for you, Tremaine. Uh, before reaching MSNBC, what were some of the adversities you endured? And what were some of the motivators that helped you get out that rabbit hole? Hmm. In, in like adversity in, in life or career, just newspaper-wise? Uh, just in general, that made you just kind of just want to quit journalism or just something that just, you know, yeah. kind of hurt you? Well, I never, I never wanted to quit because this is, the, this is like, I feel called to do this. And if I wasn't doing this, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what else I'd be doing. And for me, it was always about telling our stories. And so I think the toughest part was trying to actually tell those stories, not in a meaningful way, but just when I was young in my career, I was a, a police reporter. So I was a street reporter. So I'd be in the community all day, which I appreciate and love. When I show up, there's an immediate connection. But I think dealing with black death all the time, people that look just like me, I'm arriving at the crime scene and there he is and he looks like me or my people and seeing people and, you know, got to talk to the mother and got to talk to the aunts and telling these stories and then going back and trying to assemble it in a way that is, represents the humanity. And not to say it's always a pretty picture because sometimes people be doing wild stuff, but it's about, it, this will be respectful and fair because I'm answering to that community. Right? I'm not answering necessarily to the people in the newsroom because I'm going to execute it. Flaw it's going to be good execution because I'm, I'm good at what I do. But trying to make sure that I do right by us. And I think that has probably been the biggest thing because sometimes it does hurt and you carry this stuff around and it's like not just the, day, the, the regular day-to-day -day violence and hunger and all that stuff. Then you have Trayvon and Mike Brown and the big stories. And then going back into a newsroom and the newsroom doesn't reflect your community mm -hmm. and they don't always understand. And then even, I, and I actually love working at MSNBC because I've been given the room to do this. But then it's like, I look on air and it's like, hearing people talk about us and our issues and the thing, and I, and I, not that I resent it, but it's like, we need more of us telling these stories because they get it wrong so often, even well-meaning journalists. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's been the toughest part for me. Uh, I think the other part is, you know, with any degree of success, yet you, you wanna reach back and get your people. Mm -hmm. But as we know, just trying to get through college and all stuff, calling home, it's always an issue. <laughs> and it's always something going on and you don't wanna separate because you people, y'all are my strength. Mm -hmm. And early on, I just had to realize like, Every time I call, it's wait, wait, wait. I'm doing it for us, but it's heavy. But then it's like, well, that's why I'm here. And I can handle the weight. And I can take care of my people. And I can try to, to keep pushing our stories for the broader good. Um, but also, I think coming into the game, it was, I remember it was right after um, Jason Blair, who was a young black journalist at the New York Times who made up a whole bunch of stuff and just, Child. it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, it was bad, bad, bad. And having people saying that, um, you know, how concerned young black journalists were coming into these newsrooms, will they trust us? Um, and other people saying, I don't want to do the ghetto beat stuff, right? So for me, it's like I want to be with my people most of the time and tell our stories because I know I can do that because of the connection, how important it is. Um, but there's all those things you got to wrestle with as a young journalist mm -hmm. because sometimes you shouldn't have to cover the stuff that I want to cover, though. You should be able to cover business purely because of a business perspective. Um, so sometimes people will try to push you in a certain direction so you have that tug and pull. Um, I could talk all day, man. So we should wrap <laughs> afterwards about it. But, but I, I do wish it. you luck, and yeah. I think we do need to have a degree of confidence. And for all the reasons that we mentioned here, all the systems and all the stuff and interacting with individuals and newsrooms, it can weigh on us. But we need to have the confidence of what we've come through and who we actually are. We are survivors, and we are strong. And sometimes, I, you know, I go to a, a local bar telling the dude who owns the place, like, man, it's heavy. He's like, man, but you got this. Come on. And it's like, yeah, I do got this. Because, who, because really, what's going to stop us? A, a, a newsroom? Some sort of corporation? Everybody? This is light. Now, the heavy stuff is what we have to deal with in, in, in the energy. But be, dealing in these spaces should be easy for us. So how do we deal with people who are in it for their own personal gain? Because you two, clearly, you know, the, the burden of making sure you get it right for us 
for legacy for history there are people who are just in it for their own personal gain and they're you know it's like you know black for profit now that's the, but, but, but so that, going back going back to what nicole said about you know if you spend your check on gucci on one hand it's like you know you have to be able to exist in your blackness and what that means to you on the other hand we need to make sure we constantly call out people who are exploiting our community whether you're from inside the community or outside the community but on the other hand it's like if you win this just to make a check Get, get your check. I mean, I want us all to live and succeed and be happy and healthy, but not at our expense. Mm. Right. Do yeah, no I think about what, yeah. what Ta-Nehisi always says is like freedom is uh, the ability to just be mediocre, right? Mm. That we don't always have to try to be exceptional. With that said, I'm not messing with you if you like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't think we could spend a lot of energy on that. I think we have to uh, do the work that we're doing and find community with like-minded folks. And um, somebody was just asking today about a writer who is definitely not of our ilk, um, who has a book out, and why no one had written a response essay to it. And I was like, because he's not worth it. You know, it's like you actually give him validation by even commenting Punch, yeah, on the work that he's doing. And I think that's kind of how I go through life. If that's if you can live with yourself, fine. I don't I don't have to deal with you. But we have we are charged to do the work that that we do. Any other questions? Okay. Hello. My name is Janice Pinckney. I don't have a question. I just have a thought that um all my life I've been dying to find out about things and in my generation I had no knowledge about anything that you're talking about, and I am so happy to be mm -hmm. here, and I was so happy to see the magazine, mm -hmm. and I just want to thank everyone mm -hmm. for this, because oh. this way I can, you know, get everything that I was starving for as a young person. Oh, thank you. Hi, my name is Lonnie Eversley. I am a teacher in the South Bronx, <coughs> and um, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I use the piece with my students. I teach 12th graders who are going out into the world, and this is incredible information. I want to know how you respond to the, and I know you deal with this, um, being called racist for talking about race. Mm. <laughs> That's a Nicole, Nicole question. That's a Nicole question. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Nicole. I mean, it depends on where I'm, where I'm called. If I'm Twitter, I'm just going to punk you. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I, I, I want to say I don't respond to nonsense, except if I'm on Twitter, I do respond to a lot of nonsense. Yes. That's not even something that I, that I feel like we need to address, right? Mm. Um, saying that you understand the systems and structures is not racist. And somehow this belief that the only people who are racist are those who talk about race, despite all of the systems of inequality, and that the people who uphold those systems aren't racist because they don't talk about it. That's an old trick. Mm. That's a trick that begins right at the end of slavery, uh, after Reconstruction, when it becomes illegal to do certain things to black people because of their race, uh, white Americans start inventing race-neutral ways to do the same thing. So this is where you get the grandfather clauses. This is where you get the literacy tests, right? This is where now you get um, things like gerrymandering and just all, you know, I don't think that we need to respond to charges of racism. Racism is a very particular thing. Racism is about believing that you are superior to people of a different race and exercising that power over them. And me talking about the truth of how race works in this country is not racist. Mm -hmm. And I think you just come to them with a definition of what it is and that that is not uh, what you're doing and you move on. Mm -hmm. Don't give, you know, I, don't give the folks like that a lot of energy. They're not sincere. 
They don't want to learn. They're right. not actually making what they consider a sincere point. They're just trying to win. Um, and they already win, and we don't need to give them any more. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I like to get Socratic. I ask the question, what's racism? Mm-hmm. And usually they can't answer, right? Mm-hmm. So then if you can't define something, then how, how am I racist? Like, mm-hmm. I always put it back on. Don't own it. Don't eat it. Throw it back. Throw it up on them. Mm-hmm. You know, put it back on and make them force them to answer it. That's, That's good. It. That's good. That's I'm going to try that on Twitter. Yeah, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Define <laughs> racism. My name is Tanisha. I'm from the Hi, Bronx. Um, I just had a question primarily for Ms. Williams. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about economic empowerment and recirculating our dollars in our community? Yeah. And I want to know how do you how do we support each other better because we we have like it's covered in black comedy a lot about supporting black businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we clean up our businesses so that we can all thrive? Because mm-hmm. you do. Oh, um, my apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we do that? What uh, What are the steps so that we can be kinder to each other? Because there is a lot of self hate amongst each yes, other. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Um, so I I think one of the things that's important to do is to recognize that. We're not going to take all of our dollars and just put it in our black businesses. But if we just put some of it, you know, even if it's 10% of the dollars that we spend, put those with black businesses, then we can grow jobs in our community. It's been like statistically proven by like a million jobs just by moving 10% of our dollars into our community. I think it's, you know, we always say, don't just move your money, but move your mind. And, and what we mean by that is that there's this, this belief that we have that their ice is colder. When the reality is that most black businesses know, as you know, in fact, Nicole talked about this, is that we have to be twice as good. So if you come to like One United Bank or if you come to a black business, we, we recognize that every little mistake we made is going to be blown up to be like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. And so our team works like 24-7 to be twice as good. And even with that, we still have to get over this concern about, you know, customer service and whether or not we are as good as when we're actually twice as good. So I, I would just say to just maybe think about your mindset, you know, as people are lined up outside of like Houston's or TGIF or, you know, waiting for Popeye. a seat, Popeye's, exactly, <laughs> you know, as opposed to going into a black business or black restaurant and getting served, you know, people that, you know, bank with whoever and have accounts open for them and have them, you know, abuse you as a customer as opposed to coming into a black bank. And it doesn't have to be one United. It could be any black bank. You got Carver here, you got you got one in New Jersey. I mean, but the, the idea is really to understand that it really is a change in mindset. It's more than just a change in how you use your money. And I, I want to just push on that just yeah, respectfully yeah. a little, yeah, right? Yeah. So one of the most pervasive myths we hear is the black dollar circulates some low number. Six, and, hours, six hours. Right. Yeah. It's false. No one's ever proven that. There's absolutely no data on that whatsoever. We have no data on how black dollars circulate. If there's data on the percentage of black people who use black businesses versus Asian people who use Asian businesses, I haven't seen good data on it, if it exists. So 
we also need to be careful that we're not engaging in the stereotyping we're pushing back against. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, uh, I live in Bed-Stuy. There are tons of black businesses in Bed-Stuy. It is the ethos of Bed-Stuy to support black businesses. I bank at Carver and I bank at Chase. Mm-hmm. Chase can do certain things that Carver cannot. If I am any place in America, I can go to my Chase ATM. I cannot do that with Carver. But my most of my money is at Carver because I want to bank black, even though they don't have the suite of services. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that black people are opposed. We do know that because of the, the undercapitalization of black businesses, yes. because of the disinvestment, because it's hard to get loans, because it's hard to expand, mm-hmm. it can be harder to do so even when you want to. Mm-hmm. But... There is no such thing as like, you know, Asian people spend with Asian people. Mm-hmm. Asian people are a newer immigrant community and newer immigrant communities tend to be more insular. Once they are here for a couple of generations, they spend their money like everybody they else. Eat McDonald's um, and Popeye's. Too. Right. So <laughs> look, so, if, if they got a spot in the neighborhood that can make that damn fried chicken sandwich like Popeye's, I'll go there. <laughs> but they don't have it right now. Right. So and can I just respond? So yes, I think of this course. is actually um, so. First of all, there have been some studies done, um, but in addition to that, I, I am going to go back to banking. So the numbers that I shared, the thirty billion that are with Asian American banks, mm-hmm. those banks are banking Asian Americans. Okay, if I talk about the Hispanic banks, those banks are banking Hispanic. So when you look at thirty billion as being their largest, and, and, and it's not just one $30 billion bank, I'm talking about Asian American banks. And the, the wealth gap doesn't explain the difference in terms of the size of the institutions. And so there is, and, and I think even though, you know, uh, Nicole, you support black businesses, and a lot of people do, so this is not to be critical at all, but I think that it's, there is a mindset that we have as a community that if it's a black business, it is uh, less than, and that there's a whole generation of us that were raised with that. I think younger folks, have that less, yeah. but I definitely think you know. Sort and two of things can folks. be true, you know. And two I, things I think, can be true. I think, Absolutely. You know what she's speaking to. I think it's becoming less less of an yes. issue. I think, uh, and I've said this before. We stick together probably more than anybody. Mm-hmm. The narrative is that we don't because it's trying to brainwash us into this mm-hmm. thing that's actually not true. And mm-hmm. I think if if we talk about communities being built in the wake of no public assistance and right. and it keeps yes. happening and they keep decimating it and we keep building and they that's keep right. decimating. And you're right, seventy four percent of us are not in poverty, so mm-hmm. that speaks to that. Most of us have degrees, black women, more mm-hmm. degree than it. You know, like we keep defying all of the things and they want to give us sports. But then, oh, explain Robert Smith III, who's an engineer. Mm-hmm. And let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the end of the day, that you don't have a billion dollars mm-hmm. of res- that is a problem mm-hmm. because that means that those are businesses and houses and markets that can't be built in yes. our community mm-hmm. because we don't have foundationally a banking institution that can do that. Mm-hmm. So what does it take to get to a billion dollars? Mm-hmm. And that's something that we need to campaign and talk a little bit about the bank black X. Mm-hmm. What is that, mm-hmm. Terry? Mm-hmm. Terry Williams, mm-hmm. One United. So um, the bank black X campaign is really to to talk about the truth about our money. It's to talk about exactly the conversation that we're having and even debate it because I think it's an important debate to have. Um, Our goal is really to uh, make financial literacy 
a core value in the black community. And, and I say that because, you know, not that, that it isn't a core value. In fact, we manage money very, very well. But we need to understand the truth about our money. We need to understand why this wealth gap exists. We need to better understand that and embrace the fact that we need to fight the narrative while at the same time looking at ourselves and saying, what can we do to build our own wealth? And there are some things that we can do. I mean, and again, you know, it, it's not all about uh, uh, doing business with black businesses. Part of it is looking at yourself and saying, you know, what what's my authentic self and how what's my purpose in, in, in the world and how do I live my purpose? I mean, if one of the things you can see here is that these individuals, in fact, all of them are living their purpose and by living their purpose, they have been successful, even though there are times when I, I know that their purpose may have been questioned by others. I think all of us need to live our purpose and figure out how we could not only live our purpose and help our community, but also how we can build wealth. And that one transaction that I talked about is actually real. It's like for us to think about what is the one transaction. There's too many of us that don't have, our parents do not have wills. You know, there was Forbes did a study and only like 28% of minorities have wills. 100% of us are going to die. <laughs> and there's this belief in our community that if we get a will, if we write a will, that we're, we're going to die. die. Yeah. yeah, we do and we believe And we need to get over That's that. That's not true? And it, yes, and we need to get over that. <laughs> and we need to get over that. We need, and we need to make sure that our parents have wills. Make sure our parents have insurance. Insurance is probably the cheapest way to build generational wealth. Okay. Your, our, our parents, if I don't know how many in this room actually their parents died and left them money. Very few of us. And yet, with insurance, with a will, those things are possible. So it's really to look around and say, okay, what are the ways that I personally could build wealth? Because your wealth is important. It's not just important to you, it's important to generations to come, and it's important to be able to support projects like this. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, hi. I'm Jay Wilkins, East Orange, New Jersey. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, currently, though, I'm, I'm on faculty at Nyack College, and I teach college reading and writing. I didn't know about the 619 project, mm. but believe me, 16. I will be introducing it to my students spring semester. Because it sounds like something that's going to be enriching. You know, usually we teach the classical writers, and, and I do focus on the black writers, but now this sounds contemporary and something to inspire them to, to reinvest in themselves. So I'm, I'm going to introduce it to my students. Thank you. How'd you Spring get semester. here, though? So I'm just curious. No, you um, just serious. You they know, sent you an email. Yeah. And you were like, okay. I responded to it. And I, I said, well, I don't know what this 619 project 1619. 1619. <laughs> that's how much I didn't, I didn't know. I know it's 1619, but I didn't make the connection. And I was like, well, what is that? So I, I Googled it. Oh. And then I said, I'm so glad I did because it, it's something that for young people, it's going to give them another focus. Oh, it's going to give them another focus that will help them reinvest in their commitment to get an education, hopefully. Mm, excellent. Okay. So I think it's a good mm. idea. That's, you know, it's a, you know, I'm always surprised at what, what people don't know, no. right? And, and so that's why we got to keep talking Absolutely. and keep educating and, and not, yeah, I have to note to self. 
Because mm -hmm. I just think everybody knows everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marcus McDowell. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Um, bear with me, my question's a bit long. Um, so availability to opportunity and education directly correlates to better economic, social, cultural prosperity for a society, whether that's ethnic or a nation at large. How do you explain the severity that those at the bottom who take something they haven't had so much more seriously? How do you explain that to a group that will, they don't have to know, and they'll systematically go out of the way not to know? How do you explain, how do you broach that conversation successfully? Because in many situations I've found, uh, I get frustrated, but I also have to reiterate, and then you're not taken seriously, you're kind of spoken over. So I know you have to take everything with excellence and grace because you work twice as hard, but how do you, how do you enunciate all of these concerns best? I think before I um, hand it to Nicole, because this is a Nicole answer, everything not, Nicole answers. I got this. I think part of, part of it is understanding the facts. Um, that, that black folks over-index in terms of the amount of money you spend on education. Just knowing that, that alone, and, and Sandy Darity, Wim Darity, I forgot what the, the, um, the report was called, his last report, but did a, did a great job of breaking down the myths around the yeah. racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. And so education is one of them. That black folks, poor not poor, spend more money on average than white folks in the same, same situation. So I think the facts alone, I think that's all you have to work with, right? I just, I, I struggle with educating people who are willfully ignorant, right? And the information's there. So it's sort of like the question, how do you deal with people who say you're racist? It's like, you're just trying to discount everything. So I'm not gonna, you know, I just had this conversation with Dan Rather and he's talking about equality. I don't have to have an equality conversation. I was born equal. So we, we talk about equity, right? So I. Personally, I try not to engage with people who willfully are ignorant. That's their job to educate themselves. Now, if it impacts you, hurts you in some way, so you have to force maybe an educator or somebody that's in your life that's going to impact your outcome, then you have to figure that out. But everyday regular people who have access to things, I don't know. That's, I don't have the energy, but maybe you do, Nicole. I mean, clearly we, we do because that's our job as journalists, right? There's, there's nothing that Tremaine or I are reporting on that we invented. Everything that we report on exists in the world. And we are, as our jobs, trying to get that information out to people who don't have it. You know, I'm reading a new book every day with information that exists in the world, but until I read that book, I didn't know about it. So I think for me, yes, you have a segment of the population who just doesn't care, doesn't want facts, doesn't want knowledge. And then you have a segment of population who simply doesn't know, who hasn't had the exposure, who doesn't understand. And like Tremaine says, if you come with the facts, well, do you know that on surveys, black people actually place the highest value of education of all racial groups? Mm -hmm. Do you know that black people take out the highest level of student debt of all racial groups? That black people believe college is necessary of all racial groups? If you could list five facts, that would automatically an open person, a person who just is ignorant and doesn't know, would change the way that they think. So I engage with people. I mean, this is our job, right? Mm -hmm. Our job is to try to inform people, and hopefully by informing people, you will get people to think and do something different. If I think that you are sincere and you just don't know, then I will approach you with facts. Mm -hmm. Emotion rarely works, um, right. though I do get emotional sometimes, but the facts matter. The thing is, you can't teach people if you don't know yourself. And 
if you can't, if you don't know the facts, if you can't explain it, you can't explain it to someone else, which is why like self-education is necessary before you can educate others. But facts are always your friend. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's another conversation also about black people moving in certain spaces where everywhere you turn around, there's somebody who is ignorant, willful, or naive, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We, we're, in, we're in Brooklyn, New York. We can move around and, and kind of stick in spaces where we don't have to deal with people right. who are ignorant or racist. But when you're in some space out there in California, uh, Ohio somewhere, <laughs> and you're in a workplace, and you're trying to engage with folks but there's a difference between people who are ignorant and people who are willfully. Yes. Right, right. You know, I'm talking about people they know right. and they they have access. If they really care to know about us, it's no, not they definitely hard. could know. It's not hard. It and, and, and how you approach somebody, if you really want to know something, you know, like why is your hair like that? There's a way mm. that you can get that answer. It's called Do you know Google. what I mean? Yes. A, and and I think that some people just want to insult us. I agree. And so but we should know to tell the difference, right? Like I, I can tell a sincere question versus ignorant one. If you're asking about my hair, that's dumb. I, I'm not responding to that. Um, but there are some questions. You know, the, the whole 1619 project is full of folks who were like, I didn't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're not just white, right? Like we don't know it either. So yeah. those are people who you try to reach. Other people don't don't waste your time and, on. But if it's people who truly don't know, engage with facts. And if you don't feel like it, don't. I also tell people, here's a book. I recommend this book to you. Go read this book. <laughs> yeah, because recommend. it's not my job right. to be your Negro whisperer and help explain <laughs> right. all things Negro. Right. 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 So thank you. It's also right. your choice about how much you want to engage, how much you want to teach and how much you don't. But I think getting back to your point, we need to know first. We need we to do. be armed with the knowledge. If you can do, if you can memorize five things, because again, it's, it goes back to that marketing I was talking about. Mm-hmm. We don't have the drum beat to be able to rattle off things. And I, I'm watching people move in a way that's very disturbing because they have their marching orders. They have their code. They have their, they, they know exactly what their talking points are and they're regurgitating it. Even if they don't know anything, they know those talking points. And we need talking points that are equally as powerful because they're rooted in fact. <clears throat> We have two more questions. Okay. You want you got a question? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> Hi, my name is Nicole from New Jersey. First, I just want to thank you all for being here and allowing me the ability to hear from you. This is amazing. It's an amazing project. So thank you. My question is to you. You spoke briefly on uh, eight years ago. You were going to quit journalism. They were pressuring you, and your quote was. They want, to, they want phenotype diversity, but not intellectual diversity. And that hit home for me, um, reflecting on some of my own experiences within my profession. I'm a police officer mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And um, it's not always easy, especially when you're trying to do things the right way and you're trying to represent your people and your community and make sure that they are not marginalized even further by your profession, by my profession. So my question is, how did you get through those moments and what is it that you did to push through to be able to still be where you are and standing on top of the mountain the way that you are so uh first i should say like it was not inevitable that i would be here and most of the people who uh journalists of color particularly black journalists who started the profession with me that I was friends with are not in the business anymore so i never am like you know if you just keep pushing you'll make it Actually, you keep pushing, you're probably going to get pushed all the way out the door. Um, me personally, my my morals and like my sense of self was I could not compromise certain things. And uh, I just wasn't going to. And so either I was going to be exited or I was going to overcome. But I wasn't going to remain in the profession if it required me to compromise certain things. And I just didn't. Um, so I think 
the only things that allowed me to get through was uh, I was I was excellent at my job. You could complain about the way that I covered things, but I fully understood. I'm like every black person in America who understood how hard you have to work to get respect uh, in your in your industry and that they are looking for a reason. Right. They're looking for you to mess up. And I was never going to give them that reason. Um, and then it was a matter of just, you know, I had to get out of there. Frankly, I had to find another journalism organization. I could not stay where I was. And I think we do have to sometimes realize uh, we're not going to be able to make that place work for us. We're going to have to go somewhere else. And when I went to, uh, I ended up going to ProPublica, before I agreed to take that job, I had a very honest conversation with them. And I was like, this is the work that I want to do. If I cannot do it here, I'm not coming. So tell me now, don't, don't make me move my family. Don't even, this is what I want to do. Um, and luckily they, they allowed me to do it. Um, so I persevered. I had some luck along the way, um, but what I tell, I don't know, you, you look younger than me, I don't want to say young folks because I'm feeling old, but uh, when I tell like aspiring journalists, um, but really anyone who's looking for career advice is I might have made it here or I might not have, but it would not have been worth it for me to make it if I had to compromise myself. Mm. I can say I arrived here intact. I am who I am. Um, and if I had to give that up to get here, I don't want to be here. And I think that's the choice that we all have to make. Mm White Butler, and I live in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay, but born on Sugar Hill, here in New York, and I did not know about the 1619 Project. And when I came in a few days ago, my daughter was like, she's an educator in the Bronx, and she said she has a copy, and she said you're going down to Sirius on Tuesday, you're going to see and you're going to learn about the 1619 Project, which I'm glad she did, because in Greenville on the west side of Greenville, I sit on the board for this center for underprivileged kids called Education and Equity. And this is something that they need to know because living down there, and I've been down there for 19 years now, it was very upsetting to me that people born and bred down there in Greenville, South Carolina, Jesse Jackson's hometown, mm -hmm. have no clue about something like your 1619 project, but they will now because I'm going to take my daughters wow. <laughs> and I'm going to educate the kids and their parents. She ain't going to let you take it, but. Right? <laughs> How many kids does the organization serve? It serves 12 kids. Mm -hmm. 12 oh, I, kids. We'll get you copies. And we're bus okay, and we'll Just connect with me after and we'll, okay. we'll get you copies. Thank down. you. She may Thank not get 200,000, but she can get you 12. I'm like, now that'd be a problem. I can get, get you 12. All right. Last question, Jameson. We'll Last question, Jameson, Jameson Bennett with the Karen Hunter Show. From Kentucky. From Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, yeah, ma'am. Yes. But this is for Nicole and Tremaine. Mm -hmm. So build the future we want to see. Uh, what will be the impact? Let's say the best case scenario, we get this mandatory in all 50 states. Let's mm -hmm. like the Chicago model where it's taught K through 12. What will be the impact in white America? What will you see for Gen Z and future generations if this is the new normal mm -hmm. where 1619 Project, you, you, you learning about that in the third grade, second grade, whatever. Like, what would be the impact in your eyes looking into the future? I'll let you answer that first. <laughs> um, two, two summers ago, I did a little documentary. I toured the South to engage with uh, white communities and these vestiges of white supremacy like statues. But the kind that's not as easily torn down as a statue, like a huge obelisk and all this stuff where people were, who are reenactors. Um, and we went to the home of Jefferson Davis in Kentucky. Um, and talking to some of the historians, 
they talked about how the, the daughters of the Confederacy and all these organizations popped up right after the Civil War to kind of get hold of local school boards, get hold of textbooks, and just rewrite the history. So it's the war of Northern aggression. It's all this kind of fallacy and falsehood that created in the children who would become the Jefferson Burgard sessions of the world, people who are raised in this space to uphold white supremacy, right? To uphold segregation. So they're, they're seeding the minds. Not to say this has any nefarious, but let, let's seed the minds with truth so that the next generation of people who are going to inherit judgeships and become doctors and lawyers and people who we have to engage with, who, who, are, who are, are setting up policy and all that stuff, have a full understanding of what this country actually is. And I think the point of not just 1619, but the, the bigger idea of America is that we are exceptional in some way and we're trying to be, as I mentioned earlier, our greatest selves. So if you believe in what it says, the Constitution, everything says about America, and you're reaching towards that and you're arriving at that armed with our truth, you'll say, man, we've got to do something different. Because we're America. We are the America we say we are. Let's try to achieve that. So I'd, ho I'd hope that this information and this recentering of history would do just that. You should have went last because you're much more inspirational <laughs> than I am. You're like, it's terrible. <laughs> Listen. But we wouldn't have a project without you. Yeah. That's right. So, That's right. Exactly. Last word. So I, okay, I do all of my work fully expecting that our society will not change as a result of anything that I do. But I do it because I feel like we must, like we, that it is my job not to let white Americans sit comfortably in the society they've created and not have to acknowledge the choices that are made. But I don't expect that they will make a different choice because of any work that I do. Uh, <laughs> with that said, I think that um, what I hope the 1619 Project does is creates a space where we can actually understand the truth about who we are. Mm -hmm. And this sense that white Americans have that there are clean hands to be had in this if you were in the North, or there are clean hands to be had in this if you voted for Hillary and not Trump, mm -hmm. that that is a fallacy, mm -hmm. that uh, this entire country has lived off of uh, the exploitation of black Americans, and that white Americans every day make a choice uh, to continue to benefit from those ill-gotten gains. Mm -hmm. So. I don't, you know, when my editor asked me, like, what's your ultimate goal for the project? My ultimate goal is that there will be uh, a reparations bill passed. Mm -hmm. That won't fix the problem, though, and I understand that. I don't think the problem will be fixed. Um, so I try to have, and even that's not a realistic goal, probably, but it feels more realistic than, like, can we get white Americans to like stop being white, which is what, <laughs> right? This is what James Baldwin argues. This yes. is what Ta-Nehisi using mm -hmm. James Baldwin argues is that until white Americans are willing to give up whiteness, mm -hmm. we will never actually have uh, true equality in this country. And the only way you can get them to even think about that is they have to understand that they are white and they have to understand what whiteness <laughs> white has privilege. meant. And they need to understand the way they deploy whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to wrap this up. It's not, I told you it's not going to be inspirational. But one of the things uh, so I don't even, one of you said was about, you know, how could we convince white people to, like, vote in their best interest? Mm -hmm. Whiteness is in their best interest, mm -hmm. right? So they will give up health care mm -hmm. because what's more important is the property value of being white in this country. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that poor white people don't suffer, but they never suffer because they're white. Mm -hmm. And they can transcend that in a way that the wealthiest black person cannot. So I don't know that this uh, project can make white people give up whiteness, but it can certainly expose for them 
what whiteness truly is. Well, mm-hmm. and that's, 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 that's conversation though about this next level idea of whiteness mm-hmm. itself. That's an education. I think the 1619 Project at least seeds. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to have that conversation, right? Because yes. who else is thinking of whiteness as an abstract thing as opposed to what's on your skin? Yes. Very few, right? Now y'all have your marching orders. Uh, for those of you who are in this room, you have to spread in those listening to our voices, 10 people that you know, make sure that they know about it. Make a conversation around your dinner tables, Thanksgiving, bring it into the office places, but do that gently because we need y'all to stay employed while we do this. <laughs> you know? And uh, let me just thank our guests. Thank you, Terry Williams, One United Bank, Tremaine w- Lee, thank you so much. And of course, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the progenitor of the 1619 Project and soon to be Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you guys for listening.